Good morning. Today is Monday, August 15th, and you have joined us for Legal Talk with Minnesota Chief, or Chief, <laughs> Minnesota Supreme Court Justice. Yeah, I'm trying to give you a, a, a promotion here, Gordon. Uh, Minnesota Supreme Court Justice Gordon Moore. Good morning, Gordon. Good morning, Rich. Great to be back. Good to see you, sir. Well, you guys, uh, you guys have had a nice summer. Uh, kicking your feet up, sitting by the lake, doing the things that, that you know every right. Minnesotan does in the in the summertime. Yeah, right, Rich. And uh, now you're heading back to work. Yeah, if if only that were the truth, the the full truth, and nothing but the truth. The reality is that July for the Supreme Court is probably one of the busiest months of the year. We have uh, law clerks starting in August and going through July, and so. The July calendar, although we don't have an oral argument calendar, is packed with an effort to try to get cases done from the preceding term. And and while we still have the wisdom of these law clerks, we want to get every ounce of knowledge out of them. And so it's sort of a sprint or a stagger to the finish line in, in, in the end of July. And we still have work to do from our last term's cases, but we got brand new clerks showed up uh, mm. on August 1st okay. and diving into the deep end of the pool. And so we are, you know, there is, I mean, the, the calendar, we don't have an August oral argument calendar. And so things are a little slower from the standpoint of court hearings, but there's a lot of work behind the scenes going on. But yeah, we try to, you know, sneak in a little time. I'm, oh, that's I'm hoping good. to get some soon. And so we're, our, our oral argument calendar starts up again after Labor Day in earnest, and that's when the term ca- cases start for the 22-23 term. I was I was poking you a little bit because I do know how hard each of you uh, on the court works, but I also do hope you are going to get a little R&R at some point. Yeah, I got a little lecture on that topic just a few minutes ago, as a matter of fact, <laughs> from my spouse. Uh, yeah, and so, yes, uh, we're going to go visit my oldest son who is living in another state, and we're actually going to do a little bit of a family road trip, which we haven't done in a number of years we, after the sticker shock of airline flights yeah. and the concerns yeah. about the cancellations. We, we're we going to give a, a road trip a, 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 a try, and with college-age kids, that may not be quite as uh, 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 smooth as is when they were little, but we hopefully we'll get some driving out of them, and yeah, yeah. I hope to uh, be able to set aside the court's work for a little while and think about something else. Well, good luck to you. So uh, the uh, the calendar, the oral argument calendar, or the oral arguments will start up again after Labor Day. What um, what what have, have you as the court decided that uh, you're going to hear in September? Well, the theme for September, uh, unfortunately, is uh, first-degree murder. Oh, dear. Um, we on the Supreme Court have the original jurisdiction over appeals from the most serious form mm-hmm. of murder in the in the state system, first degree murder, which mm-hmm. is typically um, premeditated, intentional homicide, yep. and we also have uh, original jurisdiction over what are called post conviction relief petitions related to those same crimes. A person has the right after they're convicted to file a petition seeking what's called post conviction relief. It's a way to have a conviction reviewed um, sometimes things are missed by the original appeal sometimes the rights have changed and that's a topic we could discuss maybe on yeah, another day I but think it should um, be. but of the 11 cases that are on the docket for uh, the uh, September calendar we have three, four, five, six, seven of them are first-degree murder cases. Wow. And so, yeah, it's really, it's really stacked heavily on that. And so um, we start with uh, 
oral arguments on on Tuesday the 6th of uh, September and we go through Wednesday the 14th we have some <clears throat> some are non-oral cases those are ju- typically cases that uh, either involve a pro se or a self-represented first-degree murder mm-hmm. litigant or uh, cases where we don't think uh, that oral argument would be helpful they're usually cases where there's have been previous post-conviction petitions but of the cases that are going to be heard, uh, eight out of the 11 will be oral arguments. They are um, 9 o'clock in the morning, um, and we're going to go Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of the of that first week uh, after Labor Day, and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of the second week. And we have um, we have a, another COVID case we related to COVID uh, changes or restrictions on trials. Uh, that's going to kick off the calendar on Tuesday the 6th in terms of yeah, court reactions to the pandemic and yep. how trials went on. Um, <clears throat> we have a first-degree murder appeals co-defendants actually appealing uh, their convictions out of Hennepin County in a case that got unfortunately some notoriety this was the two men that got uh, convicted for kidnapping and murdering a minneapolis real estate yeah. agent uh, that is uh, mr barry alexander davis and cedric lamont barry those cases are being heard on thursday the 8th that was that craigslist case yes yeah okay and uh yeah and you know i just will underline that i you know these are i'm just talking generally about what's on the calendar right. i have not made any judgments haven't frankly read all the briefs in these cases yet but just to let everybody mm-hmm. know that that the, those two appeals are on the same day um we have some you know people who are back for um subsequent post-conviction appeals that have been there before on first-degree murder cases and you know i guess if if folks are interested in learning more about that the commissioner's office publishes a summary of issues that are going to be on on the court's agenda and that's posted on the uh, state court system website under the supreme court tab and that generally will get done uh, before we start the september calendar so yeah we we're back at it rich with uh, new clerks new cases and um, um, some similar issues and a few new things we've got a few less ser- less i guess criminally serious cases mm-hmm. but serious to the people that are involved with them on on some other topics so as usual it's kind of a it's a, an interesting cross section yeah. of the law. I know. I, I I I think I've asked you this before, and I don't remember. Are are oral arguments? Are they generally live streamed? They are always live streamed. Okay, always live streamed through the state court system website <clears throat> and mincourts.gov. The then uh, and they're archived too. So you, if you miss, you know, if you're not at your computer at nine o'clock on, you know, on Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday of that week after Labor Day, you could check in later and say, "Hey, I'll watch this later." Uh, and you know, watch and listen, and yeah, you can. Yeah. So they're 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 saved, and I think that's really a a good improvement for the state court system. So people have the ability to see what actually happens. Transparency. It's it's what we need, what we demand from our legal system. I yeah. think so. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, this is these are incredibly important cases. Uh, they have statewide impact. Mm-hmm. The decisions, you know, affect others. Yeah. Uh, obviously, people that are directly affected and then others similarly situated and so it's important that the people have the opportunity to see how the court works and listen to the arguments 
So I would uh, I would encourage people to do that. Um, I will try, uh, Rich, each month to give a little preview of the ne- upcoming attractions, yeah. so yeah. to speak. Our, our calendar starts in September. We hear arguments through the June calendar mm-hmm. unless sometimes we add you know, a a summer uh, argument if there's something that's critically important. We have um, election-related matters that are pending, too. We've issued some orders on on election petitions. The Supreme Court has original jurisdiction to hear challenges um, under state statute to candidates who are on the ballot. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've had a few of those that have been issued. We've got another one that's uh, forthcoming. Um, and a lot of these are related to the redistricting, people sure. having to change sure. um, where they live. And the law requires people to reside in a district for mm-hmm. six months prior to the election. Right. And so we've got some folks alleging that, you know, candidate X doesn't actually live where they claim they live. Right. And, right. you know, some surveillance going on and some of those <laughs> sorts of things. And, uh, yeah, it's the election years <clears throat> are challenging years for uh, the Supreme Court, because there's always stuff that comes right. up, and it's always you right. know needs to be dealt with right away because of the need to get ballots printed and things like that. Do you folks ever get rolled out of bed in the middle of the night saying we have to hear something in the next two hours? Well, we we had one of these election petitions that came in last week. the The party actually asked for a hearing the next day because wow. of, because of the primary coming up. Yeah, and that's pretty extraordinary. Uh, no, my colleagues in the district court are the ones that get hauled out of bed in the middle. Okay. Of the that was me for eight and a half years. <laughs> yeah, um, answering phone calls and trying to be coherent and. I used to tell the officers to just keep talking to me until they could get a sense that I was, you know, tracking. Right. And But, yeah, you have to wake up and review search warrants, search warrants on sure. urgent pressing business, which you know are is going to involve uh, issues that are likely going to have a direct effect on somebody right. and may well get appealed, and you don't have the benefit of, right. you know, hey, let wait until I call my law clerk and I'll call you back tomorrow on this. Right. I mean, these right. are things that are going on. You know what? Search warrants are a whole other topic that uh, we need to w- get into for a uh, a different show. But uh, today I want to talk, and y- you're talking about the, um, the 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 number of cases that you're going to hear in in September that are about appeals. And by my count, just what you just brought up, there are at least nine uh, uh, appeals that you're you're hearing. I am very interested to hear on a very broad. Uh, structure, broad nature, um, about the appeals process through the courts. Um, you know, you, you, there's, a, there's, a, there's district courts, there's the appeal, the, the, the appellate level, right. and then there's the Supreme Court. Um, people know how, what, how district courts work, I think, because it's the, th- the thing that, that's most common that may have, they may have experienced with it themselves. People know about the Supreme Court because you guys make the headlines. Uh, that appellate level um, makes plenty of headlines, but it's not something we pay as much attention to. Um, and appeals just in and of themselves are, there are different, different kinds of appeals, different levels, um, and I get, I get lost in all the whole thing. So right. I, you're the guy who can explain this, this Gordon. Well, so. <laughs> and just for clarity purposes, Rich, every one of our cases on this calendar uh, is an appeal. We do have, sure. we do okay. have some of original course. jurisdiction in like attorney discipline cases, mm-hmm. for example. Those do originate with us. But so just taking this calendar, for example, out of these 11 cases, um, we, the first-degree murder cases come directly from the district court. So those are appeal from decisions made by a district court jury or a judge relating to the first-degree mm-hmm. murder charges. 
Uh, the other cases on this calendar is, are based on petitions for further review of cases and decisions issued at the Court of Appeals. Okay. That's that appellate level yeah. uh, court that you were talking about, the intermediate appellate level court, which frankly handles the lion's share of the work on appeals in the state. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Supreme Court does is required to take certain cases, but the petitions for review, that's entirely discretionary. We decide whether a case meets criteria for review at the Supreme Court. And there's a rule that dictates what the factors are that we consider. Generally, it's constitutionality of state laws, um, issues that have statewide importance. You know, we're not, as they say, an error-correcting court. That's the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals' purpose is to, frankly, correct trial court errors for the most part. Mm -hmm. However, they do really important work because in, frankly, 90% of the uh, appeals, they are the the court of last resort. Sure. That's how it works. <clears throat> and so we we make decisions at special term calendars every month about what cases we think uh, mm-hmm. from the Court of Appeals mm-hmm. merit review. Mm-hmm. Um, just because we don't review something doesn't mean that we 100% agree with with the decision. We may, uh, we may 100% agree with it. Frankly, we may disagree with it, but... It, we may decide that it doesn't meet review criteria. Right. Uh, many of those decisions are what are called non-precedental decisions. Or they used to be called unpublished decisions. Okay. And so <clears throat> under the law, they're technically not precedent that district courts and other courts can rely on in making decisions. They can be persuasive, but they're not precedent. The, Supreme, uh, the Court of Appeals, however, does have the ability to issue uh, published or precedential decisions. And those are considered to be governing the not only the case that are that's involved with them, but they can be considered, you know, the governing word on law until the Supreme Court intervenes. Okay. There are some cases the Supreme Court just should have the last word on because of the statewide importance of the issues. Mm-hmm. And that's why, for example, the legislature gives the Supreme Court jurisdiction over these election petitions because yeah. they do they do have statewide implications and in you know how we handle election petitions needs to be consistent across the board so uh, we we hear our appeals uh, from the tax court and the work comp court of appeals as well as the the court uh, the state district and appellate courts and you know they come to us in a little different ways and sometimes with a little different standards of review depending on what the issue is mm-hmm. now it's my understanding my my <laughs> with my my 30 year old political science uh, degree uh an appeal is is based on not whether as, as i understand this and you're going to obviously help me understand this better if i'm convicted of a crime I'm convicted of of bank robbery, and I appeal. Um, the appellate court is not necessarily uh, evaluating whether or not I actually robbed the bank, but the pr- they're evaluating the process that happened in the courtroom. And they're evaluating my trial. Is that is that correct? Well, it's partially right, but you know the sufficiency of the evidence is usually something that defendants challenge on appeal. Okay. In other words, that was there sufficient evidence to find you know you guilty of bank robbery, mm-hmm. particularly you know given what rulings may be made on the admissibility of certain evidence. So yeah, it's a combination. You've got you've got these pretrial rulings that govern usually what evidence is coming in, whether searches were done uh, pursuant to the Constitution, whether or not evidence was obtained lawfully by law enforcement. Those are those are issues decided before the trial. 
Then you do have the trial process questions. Mm-hmm. You know, did I get a fair trial? Was the, you know, <clears throat> was evidence kept out that shouldn't have been kept out? Did I get a chance to make the arguments my lawyer wanted to make? And then there's the question of whether or not um, a person is guilty. And, you know, it's important for people to understand that the state, the state doesn't get to appeal a not guilty verdict. In criminal court, if you're found, if you're, if you're found not guilty by a jury, that's the end of the line. You're acquitted. State doesn't get to ask a appellate court to substitute its judgment for a jury on that. Defendants do get to appeal. They get to um, ask the court to review what happened. But it, your point is well taken in the sense that the appellate court is not int- not supposed to be substituting its judgment mm-hmm. for the fact finder that that act that listened and, and watched the evidence come in. Uh, the standards of review are criti- critically important. You know, we we review certain things for what's called an abuse of discretion. In mm-hmm. other words, did the trial court abuse its discretion in making a decision? That's a high standard. That requires, you know, the, the losing party to show that the trial court clearly misapplied the law or went off the rails and, mm-hmm. and made the decision on evidence that was inadmissible or just screwed up in evaluating the law. Other issues, legal issues, are usually reviewed with a much less deferential standard. That's called de novo review. In other words, those are issues that we do get to reconsider. Mm-hmm. You know, if, this, if the trial court interprets a statute, for example, mm-hmm. and said, well, this is what we think the statute means. You know, we have the ability as the Supreme Court to say, well, we respectfully disagree with that. Here's what the statute means. And, you know, it's, it's standards of review often dictate what ends up happening with the results because if it's a high standard of review those are tough to get overturned okay and you know defendants uh have the right to you know one appeal of a of a criminal conviction and uh they will utilize that right and you know uh, the court of appeals deals with numerous appeals from state court criminal convictions after trials and after guilty pleas and and we see some of those okay this phrase "high standard of review," um, when an uh, when an appellate court does an appellate court have the ability to decide if they're going to hear an appeal uh, the same way the Supreme Court decides if they're if you guys are going to hear it? No, the, you have a you have a right to appeal from district court to the court of appeals okay. in you know non first degree murder cases, and you you the the challenge there is the the issues have to be identified. I mean, it's not an appeal and then, you know, you show up at the day of your argument and just start lotting out random, you know, issues. You have to file a statement of the case and identify the issues that you want the appellate court to review. And uh, those are the issues that, that are briefed by the parties in written documents that are submitted. Mm-hmm. And those, and mm-hmm. then there's oral arguments before typically a three-judge panel of the Court of Appeals that hears those. Okay. And so they decide, you know, in that particular case whether or not, you know, to grant any relief that's being sought. And then, you know, we get involved. The party generally, sometimes it's both, that are unhappy with the Court of Appeals decision. They ask for us to review that decision. And so what we're reviewing in that case is how the Court of Appeals analyzed the district court issues. Yeah, you know, yeah. we, that's usually kind of what we're looking at. Right. You know, and you know, so it's usually an assessment of did the district, did the uh, Court of Appeals err in its, you know, decision here. Um, 
And that's challenging because the Court of Appeals is comprised of, you know, just outstanding judges, as our district courts are. And and so, you know, this is not intended to be a personal thing, although I know it as a district court (laughs) judge, I sometimes felt that, you know. Oh, sure. I I felt the the burn a little bit. You know, you worked hard on a case and suddenly the appellate court saw it totally differently than you did. Right. And you read that opinion and you think, well, hold it a second. That isn't the case that I had, is it? And, you know, there's just no way that appellate court judges are going to be seeing the case the same way. Right. They weren't right. there in the courtroom. They didn't hear the testimony. They're reading transcripts and looking at exhibits. Would would uh, an appellate, uh, uh, appellate courts are, are a three-judge panel, like you just said, correct? Yes. Okay. And so it's a collegial court, and so they're they're taking these uh, uh, these cases, and they're going back, and they're discussing with themselves, and they're making a decision. Is it appropriate? Would they ever contact the district judge who saw or who heard the case, and if they have questions about what was going on, or is that is that out of out of line, out of bounds? No, I mean, if if there's some question about what documents are in the record, sometimes there could be contact from the the appellate uh, court of a, the clerk's office to mm-hmm. the district court to make sure that the documents are all in the record. But no, there would be no contact with the okay. district court judge once once the district court has made its decision. Yeah. You know, you you wait. You sit there as a district court judge and you wait for those Monday morning. 10 o'clock releases of court of appeals opinions. I used to remember waiting for that. And, you know, I tried not (laughs) to take reversals personally. It's hard a little bit. You get, you get invested in your work. If you care about what you, what you're doing, but on the other hand, our judges also know, and I feel this way too, that, our obligation to the parties is to get it right. Yes. To get it right. And yes. I always felt on the district court, you know what? I was happy that there was a smart court of appeals there mm-hmm. and a Supreme Court that was, you know, overseeing that. I knew that if I goofed up, if I screwed up, if I failed in some yeah. way as a district yeah. court judge, or if the you know, they just disagreed with me, that there was a there was a way to get that cleaned up. Yeah. And I cause right. I wouldn't be able to sleep if I knew that I had, you know, erred and affected somebody's rights and there was no remedy for that. So right. Right. yeah, I mean now granted there are some cases where you as a district court judge you'd look at that decision, they would come back and you'd say, eh, I'm not so sure I agree right. with that. Right. And that's fair. I mean we have we have disagreement amongst people on my court about well, I would um, think. we have separate writings. I mean, right. that's frankly why some of these cases are taking a little time to get done because yeah. there's a, there is disagreement. There's disagreement on the court of appeals. There's two to one decisions mm-hmm. that those are frequently the ones that come up to us because one of the judges is signaling a, uh, an issue that needs to be addressed. So, you know, it's, it's a process of working it through the system and the hope is through these levels of appellate review mm-hmm. that, the errors are going to get dealt with. The errors it should get dealt with, I should say. You know, there's you have a right to a fair trial, not a perfect trial. That's right. a that's an adage. But the the errors errors that are substantive and affect the fairness of proceedings right. get addressed. Those that are maybe you know less important, you know, don't. And so we we try our best to, sure. to do it right and to get the right results. All right, I'm going to put you on on the spot here. And I, frankly, I don't completely expect you to know. This, this, but uh, rough, roughly, out of your court, how many of your like percentage wise? How often in a year? How many? How many of your decisions would be appealed? 
on average, do you think? Yeah, so in Nobles, I mean, we I always thought we had kind of an unusually large amount of appeals, which I was kind of wondering sometimes <laughs> if that was just by <laughs> luck or happenstance or was a reflection on me. But, sure. uh, you know, in a given year, Rich, in the district court in, in rural Minnesota, I probably had, oh boy, this is really, really kind of tough to remember, yeah. five or six cases a year that were getting appealed roughly. Okay. Uh, you know, you get you get to Hennepin or Ramsey County judges in the criminal areas. They they have at least that. Yeah. You know that uh, it would be in cycles. There, I'd go th- I'd go through a dry spell, and you know nobody would be appealing, and then suddenly, you know, you knew that the criminal defendants convicted of felonies were mm-hmm. were likely to appeal. Mm-hmm. They 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 were, and so if you went through jury trials and if people were convicted, you knew those were likely to generate right. appeals. The civil appeals are were in family court p- appeals were a little less common. I don't know, five to ten maybe on average, okay. roughly. Are there any convictions that um, are carry an automatic appeal? Any conv- uh, felony convictions? Yeah, the the first degree murder cases are. They're, those are so important that they just they need to be appealed, and they're, they come straight to you. They 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 do bypass the because of court. the the you know life without possibility of release being yeah, one of the right. one of the likely penalties there. If somebody's going to spend the rest of their life in prison, we darn well better make sure that yeah. we've given that person every fair opportunity to have a appeal appellate hearing. Right, right, and I, I you, know, you take every case in front of you incredibly seriously, but I mean you've got a person's you know, the the rest of their life in your hands here. Yeah. I mean, you have to take those things incredibly seriously. Yeah, it's 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 an obligation that we have to give those cases the closest scrutiny possible. Right. And we see them coming back on post-conviction relief. If you do a search of, you know, uh, cases, you will see, you know, the Roman numerals after the last name of some of these cases because it reflects the number of times their cases have been before the Supreme Court. Wow. They have been reviewed multiple times. I had a case my first term where I think I was, oh gosh, I fifth or sixth appeal the guy was on my, on different things. Yeah. yeah, and you know the and of course in federal court there's similar routes. There's the habeas corpus petition mm-hmm. to have, you know, the constitutionality of convictions reviewed. So sometimes that's what ends up happening. This after the person's exhausted their state court appeal remedies, then they go to federal court and they seek relief in federal district court through this habeas corpus process. Yeah. And that's a whole nother uh, legal doctrine that we don't have time to chat about on this show, but right. creates another route for uh, folks. And okay. so um, it's a it's a process. I can't imagine uh, those, you know, those lawyers working on like federal death penalty cases mm-hmm. that where they're, you know, tr- seeking stays of execution and things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a yeah. There's a okay. lot of appellate yeah. work that happens. Yeah. Okay, I th- I think you just tried to con- uh, to explain uh, this concept to me, but I, m- maybe I'm just a little dense today. Post conviction relief. The, some of these things you were just talking about falls under that mm, umbrella, right. but sort of broad brush. What is post conviction relief? Well, it's a it's a statutory process that gives a convicted person the opportunity to have their conviction reviewed, mm-hmm. and it typically comes up if there's been a change in the law or if there's been a if newly discovered evidence. Yeah. This is often what happens. For instance, this is where these Innocence Project cases have come into play, mm-hmm. where DNA reviews on cold cases have sometimes exonerated people, mm-hmm. where you know people have been um, literally have been sitting in prison for decades based upon convictions that 
have been overturned because of the improvement in DNA technology. And suddenly the person, there's another perpetrator there then mm -hmm. in, you know, that's the prototypical type of post-conviction relief. Um, oftentimes you will also see people who have claims of newly discovered evidence, which frankly aren't that strong, but they are based on recantations by trial witnesses, mm -hmm. people claiming that their lawyer didn't do a good enough job at trial, the you know, ineffective assistance mm -hmm. of counsel claims. And if you know, if their lawyer had only called this witness or done what I told them to do, there could have been a different outcome. And so there's it's Minnesota statute section 590. And so that lists the types of issues that can be brought on a post-conviction mm -hmm. relief claim. Now, there are time limits on this. Okay. It's not intended to be this kind of perpetual appellate process, All right. despite what it sounds like. There are, you know, many of these cases end up getting, you know, dismissed on, on the grounds of, you know, too late, too sorry. But sometimes there's, you know, there is an interest of justice. Yeah. You know, I mean, we are about justice in this business. And every now and then there is something that can, comes up that just needs to be reviewed. Yeah. And, you know... Um, it's sad, but it's true that there are, you know, there have been innocent people incarcerated and who have been exonerated. And, you know, it, the the way that happens is through these post-conviction yeah. relief processes. Well, you know, as we're talking about this, I'm, 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 I'm wanting to ask you, is there the, ever the Hollywood scenario? And the, actually the case I'm thinking about, being a fan of Bob Dylan, is Reuben Carter, uh, who was uh, a boxer who was convicted of first-degree murder, um, and I think did about 30 years in prison and then was exonerated. Um, that's one in 10 billion, I'm sure. I mean, that, but, but do you, does the, the Hollywood scenario ever pop up where there, like, there really is some uh, evidence that was suppressed that is discovered however many years later? And like, have you ever experienced anything like that? Well, fortunately in Minnesota, we have a very robust public defense system that provides good lawyers to people mm -hmm. that don't, they can't afford them. Generally speaking, our public defenders are right on top of things and, you know, are Johnny on the spot looking at all the forensic evidence and getting experts lined mm -hmm. up that the state has to pay for to look at, you know, the validity of different types of generally scientific evidence. But Sadly, in parts of this world, parts of this country, mm -hmm. um, public defense systems are vastly underfunded. Yep. Lawyers are not provided to people that, frankly, are always competent. And that's where there have been some just remarkable stories of big law firms and other you know, folks volunteering time for the Innocence Project, yeah. oftentimes with de people on death row. You know, Reuben Hurricane Carter's story is, is one of, you know, the type of situations that you know everyone in the justice system should be concerned about that mm -hmm. there's somebody unjustly convicted mm -hmm. sitting in prison yeah. waiting for the opportunity to have somebody care about their case and it's challenging because you know when when you're dealing with um, incarcerated people there are frankly there are you know lots of of you know meritless types of claims that come forward mm -hmm. uh, people that have you know time to think about things and, and, and nothing you know, but time proverbial right. you know kind of the jailhouse lawyer scenario yeah. where they heard from somebody that here's an option of but you know we we have to keep our frankly our our uh you know minds open to the possibility that somebody 
somebody deserves a hearing on some new evidence mm-hmm. or there's a newly discovered uh, confession or something. And yeah, I mean, you do hear stories about, sadly, about evidence that, you know, was withheld from a defendant that right. should have been disclosed, right. that if it had been disclosed would have resulted in possibly an exoneration. Yeah. And so, or an acquittal. And, you know, I... I mean, I w- I've been part of the system, quote unquote, for 30 plus years. And as a prosecutor, you have an obligation as a minister of justice to disclose, you know, evidence that's that's helpful to the defense, exonerating evidence. Yeah. And, you know, sadly, uh, sometimes that doesn't happen completely. Right. Well, and so yeah. when when that's discovered, there's got to be a way that people can bring that to the attention of the courts. And so um, that's often the way uh, habeas corpus proceedings in federal court are the other process where, you know, the sheriff or the state is required to justify why somebody has been convicted and sitting in custody. And it's uh, it's a process, Rich. Uh, and, you know, I always I mean, my goal on the state district court was to ensure that defendants had every right available to them at mm-hmm. trial mm-hmm. that they were availed of all opportunities to put their case together that was yeah. reasonable uh they had a right to present a defense yeah. you know regardless of what the state f- thought about the merits of it they had a right to a defense and you know uh contrary to i think the assumption that some people have i mean you know there are acquittals i mean there are you know not guilty verdicts that's not a statement that you know the person is found innocent uh, right. that, but that right. the state wasn't able on that day to prove them guilty beyond a reasonable doubt beyond it's a reasonable a, doubt it's right. a high bar for a reason yes if you're going to take somebody's civil rights away you're going to take away their liberty uh you're going to incarcerate them you darn well better have proven that that's justified right. and so yeah that's the whole post-conviction relief process okay. and it's a uh, it's its own animal um and if you take a look at some of these cases that were coming up. Some of them will be uh, orally argued, and you can hear about the incredible lengthy process, appellate process that's taken to get to the place mm-hmm. where they're at. I mean, two of the defendants on this calendar, for example, are defendants. Their their murders were committed in like 2009. Wow! And we are when they're juveniles and we are still involved because of the changes in how the u.s supreme court directs juveniles or directs the juveniles you know or can't be sentenced to life without release unless they've had a certain type of hearing and some of these juveniles that are caught up in the appellate system haven't had those hearings and so there's you know remands back to the district court for that and so we are we are dealing with things that happened sometimes a long time ago. Yeah. Every time you and I have one of these conversations, I get an idea for eight more shows. Good. So, yeah. <laughs> I have one more question, and then we got to get out of here. You've referenced uh, this organization, the Innocence uh, 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 Project, a couple of times. Who has the power to file an appeal uh, on behalf of a convicted felon? Well, uh, you know, you have to be the attorney for that party you know you know the innocence project typically is getting involved later after after someone's been convicted they've been asked to take a look at evidence and and get involved with the case later on uh sometimes on on direct appeal but usually on post-conviction relief in minnesota most of the appellate work in criminal cases is done by the state appellate public defender Mm -hmm. who is you know Excellent. They're just, you know, these are attorneys that are doing these cases every day. That's what they do. There are some privately retained defense attorneys that that appeal cases, but you can't just 
randomly decide, hey, I feel bad for this guy. I'm going to appeal his case. I mean, you've got to be that person's attorney. You've got to be retained as their counsel and be acting as their counsel because the right to counsel, you know, means something. And so yes, in terms yes. of confidentiality and, and, and that. So um, sometimes the Innocence Project is called in later on uh, in other, other, you know, pro bono uh, attorney groups. Some mm-hmm. of our big law firms have donated uh, time, frankly, to assist um, death row prisoners who are seeking relief, seeking hearings to have new evidence looked at. Mm-hmm. And so we've got lawyers who have donated from firms, have donated hundreds, thousands of hours of pro bono work trying to help out people that can't afford it otherwise, which sure. is really, really uh, laudable. Um, and so, yeah, our you know we're fortunate, Rich, in Minnesota that we have a public defense system that is, I think, excellent. I mean, you know, they're not paid enough. I'm just going to say that, you know, there's, there's, there's a need for Mm -hmm. keeping salaries, you know, commensurate with Mm -hmm. experience and ability. But the uh, public defenders work hard every day in this state uh, for people. Um, Their job is to represent people who are guilty, people who are innocent, everybody in between. Mm -hmm. You know, it's their job is to make sure that people's rights are protected and that, you know, um, people are given fair trials and have a fair day in court. And, uh, you know, we have a a criminal defense bar to a private defense bar. It's very zealous and very, um, you know, involved uh, defense lawyer um, groups. So we we know as the Supreme Court, when we get one of these high-profile cases, we get what are called friend-of-the-court briefs sometimes Mm -hmm. from prosecutors, from defense attorneys, and we're we're getting the the best of the input that we can get in order to hopefully make the right decision. Sure. Okay. Well, Justice Gordon Moore, we thank you as always for your time. I love these conversations, Gordon. It's great to be back, Rich. Uh, We'll be back in September with, uh, you know, hopefully a preview of our October calendar and and maybe uh, you've got a few ideas for topics. I, I absolutely do. In the meantime... I hope you enjoy a little time with your family, sir. And thanks. Uh, uh, and yeah, get rested up because we're asking an awful lot of you, Gordon. Yeah, I gotta so. keep my keep my eyesight going here. And, and <laughs> yeah, I need, need some sleep, frankly. Right. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, Gordon.